in the 1920s. With the 1913 balance predating and yet exhibiting elements of the 1920s glorification of youthful, mercurial femininity, interesting questions are raised regarding how Nijinsky's attitudes to the body prefigured those of the post-armistice woman. Namely, if Nijinsky left the Ballet Russe in 1913 and faded from the spotlight soon after, how and why did his conceptions of body image survive the war and gain currency in the 1920s? In considering the corporeal modes of androgyny, depersonalization, and kinesthetic appeal, I will draw upon Paul Schilder and Ernst Bloch's respective notions of body image and utopian anticipatory illumination to contextualize the 1913 ballet's endeavors within the pursuits of bodily improvement and experimentation. Both men, Schilder and Bloch, who crystallized their ideas in the 1930s, were writing in response to the sweeping societal changes that followed the First World War. Schilder, a psychoanalyst who had treated war-injured soldiers, applied his insight to existent um, discourse on the physiology and developed a notion of body image as the tri-dimensional image which everybody has about himself. This notion incorporated both the body's appearance and an individual's multi-sensory experience of his own body. Importantly for Schilder, the, post the body's postural model was, I quote, in perpetual inner self-construction and self-destruction and therefore it was aligned with movement as it adapted itself to external stimuli. Bloch, a Marxist philosopher who also wrote about the impact of movement on the mind-body network, like many of his generation, viewed the dance as celebration of youthful dynamic bodies as a transformational utopian practice that countered the war's mass carnage. Dance, he argued, could imitate something which has never been lost, which has been lost or never been possessed. It paces out the wish for a more beautifully moved being, fixes it in the ear, the eye, the whole body, just as it had existed now. Bloch thus found what he termed an anticipatory illumination, a type of utopian prophecy for the future in the dancer's ability to shape physical and mental attitudes. Schilder and Bloch's ideas are relevant to this investigation because Nijinsky's 1913 ballets Jeu and Sacre were on one level concerned with developing dance for a new generation through fundamental adaptations in the dancer's body image. The, cho the choreographer's initial choice for the roles of the red-haired female lover in Jeu and the chosen maiden in Sacre um, was Bronislava Nijinska, his sister, primary pupil and assistant. In her words, she became the human material for his choreographic experiments and research for new forms of dancing and artistic expression. Nijinska's high elevation and preference for angular, precise movements were instrumental to the development of a new balletic feminine model. Yet so were the dynamics of sibling reflection, which informed the choreography of Jeu and Sacre. Nijinska reports that Nijinsky repeatedly emphasised to her that she was his sister and instructed her to dance differently from the classical ballerina's queenly dependent manner, which reduced the male dancer to the role of porteur. Nijinska was to, I quote, stand on toe, jump high, and then come down softly, unsupported, thus dancing in harmony with Nijinsky, who would reflect her dance. Here, Nijinsky attempted to equalise the pas de deux so that both parties could demonstrate virtuosity. However, this notion of reflection also served um, to diminish gender differentiation and enabled the female dancer to dance independently and become technically stronger. Nijinsky's experiments with androgyny in the pas de deux were integrated into Jeu's structure. Jeu, set in the future year of 1925, was a ballet about the flirtations of three tennis players, one male and two female. 
the female participants, who often seemed like mirror images, shared the, male the male's body posture and erot erotic agency. Their athletic shifts of weight departed from the classical ballerina's denial of gravity. For example, the dancer's three-quarter point resembled the anticipatory stance of an athletic manoeuvre, and their tense, taut arms ending in half-clenched fists emphasised musculature. This is shown in the Parisian theatre periodical here on the left, um, La Comédia's apt positioning of Nijinsky's flexed arm and the curled wrist pose opposite uh, and curled wrist pose opposite Ludmilla Scholler's equivalent. Here, both male and female participants exhibit the sportsmanlike effort and efficacy behind their movement. <coughs> the ballet's costume designer, Leon Baxt, similarly promoted the exposition of the body's androgynous kinesthetic mechanisms. Baxt viewed the sporting androgynous body as utopian herald of modern youth, but paradoxically looked back to the unadorned agility um, of classical antiquity. In 1913, he argued that we are approaching a time when there will be little distinction between men's and women's dress. The new woman, he argued, would imbue playfulness, an interest in sport, and the beautiful movements associated with this. For Jeu, Baxt, in collaboration with the couturier um, Jean Paquin, conceived a flannel ley-line skirt with internal pleats, a fitted sweater, and a body stocking for the female dancers. These were shortened and streamlined versions of, con of contemporary female tennis whites, which were typically full-length and followed the fashionable Belle Epoque S-shaped silhouette, and they're shown here on the top left um, in André Marty's sketch. Um, um, although in the early 1910s, women, including actresses and models, some of whom are also shown here, whose professions exposed them to the public eye and thereby licensed them to experiment with their appearance, imbued elements of Jeux's radical body image, the ballet's costumes were futuristically utopian because they were, in Bach's words, inseparably linked to the modern woman's aspiration towards uninhibited movement. This quest towards enabling female mobility continued and was accelerated during the war and post-armistice years, as style arbiters recognised that middle-class women increasingly engaged in what were deemed the formerly masculine domains of work and physical labour. Subsequently, dress had to appear rational and accommodate greater freedom of movement. By the mid-1920s, the predominant uncorseted silhouette incorporated shingled hair and simple straight lines. As Mary Lynn Stewart has argued, the new woman's supple simplicity um, rendered them redemptive androgens, um, women who somewhat replaced the vigorous male youths that had perished during the war. In many respects, the playful sportiness of Jeux's female dancers anticipated the 1920s androgens. However, while Jeux's close-fitting um, costume showcased the dancers' rounded shape, in the 1920s, as Mary Louise Robertson has identified, high fashion periodicals encouraged women to attain a linear prepubescent physique through diet and exercise. This was accentuated in the mid-1920s fashion's attempts to promote the body's more androgynous lineaments, for example, legs and arms, above the maternal parts, breasts and hips. Women, whose bodies were exposed in the media and entertainment industries to an unprecedented level, began to be portrayed in a manner that emphasised their, bo their boyish mercurial vigour. Um, I think you get this a lot from Pierre Pissot's illustration for Femina magazine in 1921. 
Um, in the Ballet Russe, this streamlined um, feminine body image, with its emphasis on gender-neutral erogenous zones, predominated from the 1920 onwards, when Chanel first began to, to dress and design costumes for the dancers. <coughs> Nijinska's mid-1920s ballet place developed Zhu's earlier quest towards gender parity. Nijinska considered that Zhu was the forerunner of neoclassical ballet, for her, Zhu's new free movements and positions of the body applied to classical technique were thus anticipatory illuminations of the modern dancing bodies she was to develop in her own choreography. Nijinska applied Zhu's experimental approach to gender in Les Biches, a 1924 satirical ballet about a Parisian high society soiree. The ballet's star dancer, um, the slender, precise Vera Nemchinova, especially invoked the modern androgen's body image through her movements and costume. According to Lydia Sokolova, another dancer within the Ballet Russe, um, Nemchinova resembled a page boy in Marie Laurencin's fitted little blue velvet bodice and white gloves. Nemchinova's androgyny was further foregrounded because her sleek costume and angular asymmetric body posture resembled her consort Anatole Vilzak. Here, Nijinska evoked Zhu's motif of sibling reflections and transformed them into an androgynous, reflective pas de deux. However, rather than allotting Vilzak and Nemchinova equally challenging choreography, Nijinska spotlighted her female dancer by placing her on point and giving her movements that combined classical ballet technique with static poses that recalled cinematic freeze frames. Sokolova describes, for example, how Nemchinova took her, points, uh, took her pirouettes from her points and stopped them dead in an open position. By reinvesting the female dancer with a classical ballerina's technique-derived fascination, Nijinska acted in accordance with a contemporary fashion for displaying the active female body and, on a further level, the contemporary movement towards displacing male vigour with female. In the 1913 ballets, dancers of both genders were described as puppet-like and unemotional. As the French critic Jacques de Rivière observed, in Nijinsky's choreography, the face plays no independent role. It is an extension of the body, its flower. However, this depersonalization was especially significant with female dancers, who in classical and Mikhail Fokin's ballets were accustomed to wooing audiences where their facial expressions and personalized movements. The archetypal Fokinian ballerina, Tamara Kalsavina, who we met in Lynn's lecture earlier, and she who played the brunette lover in Jeu, resented that Nijinsky had, in the Le Figaro critic Henry Kitar's words, almost succeeded in turning her into a stiff, awkward puppet. In her words, Nijinsky forced her to keep her head screwed on one side and her hands curled as in one maimed from birth, so that these formally expressive body parts became decorative components in Nijinsky's overall scheme. Karsavina's displeasure and lack of comprehension at being thus stylized meant that she often, to Nijinsky's fury, resumed classical ballet's orthodox postural model. The undertones of automation in Nijinsky's attitude to body image can be further drawn out with Schilder's theory of depersonalization. This was a state that Schilder defined as when an individual's actions appear to him as automatic, as both the ego and the outside world um, as both in the ego and in the outside world, he does not recognise himself as a personality. In Nijinsky's Sacre, um, depersonalization took place on a grander scale because, despite some very notable exceptions, dancers who belonged to specific sections of the tribe signified collectively 
As Stephanie Jordan has rightly argued, Stravinsky's score emphasises motor rhythm and thereby the body's movement in the present moment. This is distinctly different to the elevated and distancing notions of characterization that melodic 19th century ballet music facilitated. Indeed, in an attempt to enable the dancers to externalize Stravinsky's challenging score, Diaghilev and Nijinsky utilized the Dalcrosian dancer Miriam Ramberg, later Marie Rambert's services, as a repetiteur. Um, Rambert deployed her mentor Dalcrosa's method of using bodily movement as a means of rendering musicians conscious of rhythmical nuances in the score. What André Levinson described as Sacre's Dalcrosian literalism was um, the most radical reform to Ballet Ballet Russe dancers' body image to date because it emphasised that they were bodily automata, um, who in Levinson's words performed the schematic gymnastics to the relative length and force of the sound. If we return to Nijinska and her accounts of rehearsing the chosen maiden's role, the undercurrents of the dancer automaton reappear. She felt that my body must draw into itself, must absorb the fury of the hurricane. I saw, understood, and executed accurately each movement, correctly rendering the inner rhythm. Her body image was thus psychosomatically rather um, than aesthetically determined as she surrendered her individuality to the choreographic total artwork's rhythm. This rhythmic totality also applied to the, body, to the ballet's overall aesthetic conception of female body image. As um, we have talked about today, and um, Millicent Hodgson was one of the first people, I think, to speculate this, um, the floor patterns um, of the maiden's choreography mirrored um, Nicholas Rorich's design for the ancient Slavic ethnographic patterns that fringed their tunics. Such a collective body scheme arguably formed part of Nijinsky and Rorich's total experiment with a model of humanity drawn from a historical period that predated the Western post-Enlightenment cult of individuality. In her 1923 ballet, Les Noces, which was based upon the preparations for a Russian Orthodox peasant wedding, Nijinska reinvigorated the motif of a primitive society's collective depersonalized body image. Lenos's maidens and youths with their, ang- with their uniform brown and white costumes, neutral facial expressions, and angular verticality, recalled in the designer Natalia Goncharova's words, identical playing cards in a game with, I quote, rigid and complex rules and innumerable combinations. A dehumanized body image was further emphasized in the, dancers, in the female dancer's choreography, which was on point with feet in parallel, rather than in the conventional turnout, um, particular to classical ballet. In Levinson's opinion, this imbued the dancers with the profane, tubular woodenness of modern mannequins. Levinson's metaphor recasts the 1913 ballet's um, puppet-like automatons in a more feminized and fashion-focused guise. An illustration by André Marty for Vogue, shown here on the left, um, shows shows Nijinsky's characteristic decorative head use in the 1913 ballets, and also displays the dancer's mannequin-like interchangeability. Lenos' emphasis on collective stylization and the merging of diachronic and synchronic elements evoked the mid-1920s female body's hieroglyphic streamlining in the fashion periodical L'Art et la Monde, which positions four blank-faced, identically proportioned illustrated mannequins in a diagonal. It would seem, then, that Nijinska's spare production took the collective, new depersonalised vision of humanity in Sacre, but de-emphasised the ethnographic elements in favour of a modernist conception of performing womanhood, where flattened female silhouettes 
con continuously mirrored and displaced each other. Arguably, in this staged collapse of chronological boundaries, she envisioned a parallel between the interchangeable disposability of nubile peasant maidens and modern young women. The tension between a group's overall rhythmic movements and the dance of an individual forms an important part of female body image in Sacre. This is most notable in the sacrificial maiden, who first demonstrates her elect status by tripping twice during the young maiden's mystic circles dance at the beginning of the second act. Her 123 staccato vertical jumps and drops to irregular beats signal both her subordination to a violent rhythm and her ability to distinguish herself through a solo that in Nijinska's words displayed a frantic expansion of energy. Within the solo, her body posture compresses to enhance this impression. According to Nijinska, she makes a convulsive jump on one leg, having crossed and raised the other in front of her, and then squeezing one hand into a fist, she threatens the heavens while the other is held close to her body. Here, the raised threatening arm, um, in this illustration by Valentine Gross, the raised threatening arm combined with the frenzied jump accentuates the erratic verticality of the dancer's body image in its straight light wool tunic as she violently declares herself an individual who emerges from the pattern. Both in her initial and final dance, then, the chosen maiden displays what Vera Krasovskaya terms a magnetic awkward grace. And this quality, along with the change in Stravinsky's score, um, was important in finally silencing the initial, May 19th, the initial May 29th performances rioters. Despite the dancer's precise um, physical nature, then, its psychological significance is complex, as the trembling maiden seems to fear and protest against her fate, and yet, as a dancer, she thrills to being the centre of attention. Interestingly, Nijinska, who recognised the chosen maiden's charisma, um, perceived the anticipatory illumination of intellectually and spiritually superior femininity in Sacra's primitive society. She stated um, that the men, with their heavy wool tunics, long beards and hunched shoulders, were bestial, whereas the women, more supple in lighter tunics and long black braids interspersed with silver thread, though also primitive, evoked, I quote, in their countenances, the awakening of an awareness of beauty. Though one must be careful of over-interpreting this statement, it shows both Sacre and, importantly, Nijinska's utopian vision of dance as a discipline where young women could rise to artistic preeminence, though at a price. Indeed, in the late 1920s, Anna Pavlova, a Russian emigre um, star ballerina towards the end of her career, and with it her life, prophetically compared herself to Sacra's chosen maiden, who was fated to dance to death. Here, the chosen maiden became a symbol for fanatical devotion to the dance, an entity that could destroy the ephemeral body, and Tepsikori herself became the deity who demanded appeasement. One might argue that the chosen maiden, alongside Pavlova's dying swan, and the other roles we heard mentioned earlier this morning, cemented the association of ballet, obsession, and psychosomatic disorder that continues to this day. However, despite a dancing to death, the chosen maiden's frenzied expulsion of energy little resembles the swan's melting languish. While the latter sought to create an aesthetic afterimage, the former pioneered a vision of femininity based upon action, non-conforming, and the ability to captivate the spectator's gaze through adaptations in, one body in one's body image. Though less potent, the other personages in Nijinsky's 1913 ballets similarly challenged conventions of gender, selfhood, and beauty in pursuit of theatrical truth and a radical new vision of humanity. This was exacerbated during the war years when the eternally transforming dynamic nature of the dance rendered it a counter to death, 
and a as a social dance craze swept France. As René Jeanne wrote, the dance madness was born in the last days of the war and will flourish into the armistice years. Thus, in the 1920s, the physical vigour apparent in Sackler's Maiden or Jeux's tennis players had never been so relevant. Moreover, both consciously and unconsciously, young female dancers and style arbiters adapted elements of the 1913 ballet's provocative body image to suit a post-bellum world where their bodies were increasingly visible and they had proved themselves active rather than decorative beings. By evoking a similar impetus to action as the heroines in Nijinsky's 1913 ballets, they adjusted to their turbulent historical period by adopting an adolescent, constantly mutable body image, which, as Schilder observed, was in perpetual self-construction.